Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Ngunnawal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we ensure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of the Talking Tech Policy podcast. I'm a lawyer, a diplomat, and until recently, I was Australia's expert to the United Nations on cyber issues. I've since joined the Australian National University, where I've established the Tech Policy Design Centre. We've launched this podcast because we want to encourage more people to get involved in discussions about how technology is shaping our lives. Hi, everyone. This is another special issue of Talking Tech Policy, where we're bringing you the keynote speech that I delivered at NATO SciCon in Tallinn, Estonia. I was honoured, and I have to admit a little bit nervous, to be invited to speak after President Karas of Estonia and General Nakasone, the head of NSA and US Cyber Command. Unsurprisingly, much of the conference was focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, if you're a visual person, you can imagine me delivering this speech to a room full of 500 or so stern-looking military types. And we'll put a link to the video in the pod notes. In the first part of my speech, I talk about the UN negotiations that I was involved in in my previous role. Of particular relevance to the NATO crowd was the fact that these negotiations secured explicit recognition that international humanitarian law applies to state conduct in cyberspace during armed conflict. And over the course of SciCon, it became very clear that Russia is extensively using cyber operations in Ukraine in an increasingly coordinated manner with its kinetic operations on the ground. So given that we had this UN agreement little over a year ago, and given Russia was central in the negotiating that agreement, I use this speech to encourage NATO cyber commanders to keep a close eye on whether Russia's cyber operations in Ukraine are breaching international humanitarian law. And if they are, I encourage NATO members to call out and hold Russia to account for those breaches, just as we are and will do for Russia's kinetic war crimes. And in the second part of my speech, I shared five hard truths about the international rules-based order. This is a concept which Western diplomats have been talking about for some years, not always with positive results. And I wanted to share some of the mistakes that I've made in the hope that as military folks are increasingly talking about the international rules-based order, they can refine their language and make a more persuasive case. Because time is short and the rules-based order is ours to lose. So with that, let's dive into the speech. So a Russian and an Australian walked into an Irish bar in New York. It sounds like the start of a bad joke, but in actual fact, it was my life about a year ago. Uh, I had been released from Fortress Australia, where we were in lockdown uh, during uh, COVID, and been given special permission to travel to New York, where I was meeting with Ambassador Andre Krutsky, uh, Putin's special advisor for international cooperation on ICTs. 
We were choosing, we'd chosen to meet at McSorley's Irish Bar. For those of you who know New York, you'll know this claims to be one of the oldest, longest established bars in New York. And the reason that I chose McSorley's was because somebody had told me that it only served two types of drinks, light beer and dark beer, no vodka in sight. This was a strategic self-preservation decision on my own behalf. For those of you who know Andre Krutzky, you'll understand that. And we were there to talk about uh, two sets of cyber negotiations. We ar I arrived first and ensconced myself in a table, and Andre arrived after me and insisted that we moved to a table on the other side of the room. Presumably because he assumed that I had arrived early to bug the table, as opposed to that I had arrived early because I wanted to try McSorley's hot dogs. But in any event, we moved and we sat underneath a sign that said, be good or be gone. And we decided that this sign would become the, the motto for the negotiations that we were about to conclude. The two sets of negotiations was the GGE, which was initiated by the United States, 25 governmental experts. And the other set of negotiations was the open-ended working group initiated by Russia for 193 countries. Now, for those of you who follow international law and norms closely when it comes to cyberspace, you'll recognize the GGE as being the foundational group that agreed that international law applies to cyberspace back in 2013, and then in 2015 agreed 11 norms of responsible state behavior. Now, I know many people have questions about the efficacy of these high-level agreements and norms, and I'll come to that later in my presentation. But for the moment, I wanted to emphasize the significance of these two agreements, particularly to everybody here in the room today. Like all multilateral, multilateral, multilateral negotiations, it requires grit and hard work, which sometimes happens over beer and hot dogs, but it also requires a certain serendipity you need to have the sun, the moon, and the stars of geopolitics and multilateral negotiations align right at that moment when you're concluding your negotiation. And what was quite extraordinary about the two sets of negotiations that we were doing is that we managed to have the sun, the moon, and the stars align twice within two months. So with the OEWG, this was the group that Russia had initiated, 193 countries, and Russia had broke the, the negotiations out from the small group format into this large group format. Now, that wasn't because Russia suddenly decided it wanted to be inclusive and democratic. It was because we feared that Russia was trying to rewrite what had been previously negotiated over two decades with, uh, within the GGE to try and rewrite the international rules-based order in cyberspace, if you like, somewhat of a common theme that we are hearing in other domains as well. What we achieved within the OEWG was not substantive progress, but we did, whilst negotiating with 193 countries, manage to reaffirm the two decades worth of agreements that had been made in the small group format. 
And that really was a significant diplomatic feat due in no small part to the gentleman uh, who is pictured here, Ambassador Lauber, the Swiss chair of the, that process. So with the Russian process concluded, all eyes then turned to the GGE. And this is a picture of uh, Ambassador Patriota, who was gaveling in the final report of the GGE, much to the relief of everybody uh, joining virtually or, or not virtually. It was a strange set of hybrid negotiations. The GGE, um, we, we managed to conclude this negotiation, notwithstanding that the Russian process had finished two months earlier. There was a lot of angst about whether Russia would hold up its end of the bargain and uh, also play ball uh, with the US-led GGE. And in part, this was what I was talking about, about serendipity. So in May and June 2021, there was a detente in US and Russian relations that frankly, if you blinked, you would have missed it. And it's a detente that I don't think we will see again for a long time, given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But Putin and Biden were due to meet in June, and that allowed us to apply pressure in the GGE. And we had two significant outcomes in the GGE. The first was um, substantive guidance on how to implement the 11 norms of responsible state behavior. So we went from sort of one sentence norms to multiple paragraphs of explanation. And we also agreed that existing international humanitarian law applies to state conduct in cyberspace. This is the first time that this has been explicitly recognized in a UN document. This is one of my favorite photos of the negotiations. I call it the Gigi Brady Bunch. It's the photo that we took immediately after the uh, report was gaveled in. The paragraph on international humanitarian law was the last paragraph to be agreed. The report itself was certainly no fait accompli. The GD in 2017 had failed after years of negotiation. The paragraph on IHL was particularly difficult, but we managed to conclude it uh, by doing some diplomatic dancing with the language. Uh, I think it's interesting here that for China, to get China across the line, we needed to include explicit recognition to say that just because we were referring to international humanitarian law, we weren't encouraging the militarization of cyberspace. That's what it took to get China across the line. To get Russia across the line, we needed to put two things into the document. The first, was that Russia required us to say that IHL only applies during armed conflict. Now, to all of the lawyers in the room, that's sort of a self-evident truth that IHL only applies during armed conflict. I think the fact that Russia required this to be inserted in the agreement is telling of Russia's concern about its gray zone activities. The other thing that Russia required to have inserted was a sentence saying that um, I, we need to have further study on the application of how international law applies. And the point I'd like to emphasize here is that just because it requires further study does not diminish the fact that we have agreed that existing, that, that international humanitarian law applies. China has agreed this. Russia has agreed this, the US has agreed this, the 25 experts agreed this, 
and every country at the United Nations endorsed this in December 2021. Now, if you know me well enough, the next question that I get asked is, well done, Johanna, great negotiation, good outcome, but who cares? Because we're talking about something that our adversaries won't necessarily abide by themselves. This is a question that I get all the time. Why do we agree norms and law if it constrains our militaries, our operators, if it's not constraining our adversaries? And I would say to this, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the way UN negotiations work. When I negotiate at the UN, I don't negotiate and then turn around and say, hey guys, at the Australian Defence Force, with the Australian Signals Directorate, guess what? I just agreed that international humanitarian law applies to cyberspace. Now you guys need to apply it. That's not how negotiations work. The way that every negotiation that has articulated responsible state behaviour in cyberspace is the exact opposite. We take something that our countries are already doing and we say we want this to be the international standard. We want to embed this in the international rules-based order. And so when we say international humanitarian law applies, the Australian uh, ADF already applies international humanitarian law to our cyber operations. This is not an additional constraint. And so the message that I'd like to make for everybody here, uh, sorry, the second point on this that I'd like to make is around the, the question of, well, if the rules are made, but then the rules are break, broken, what's the point of them? We've seen Russia violate the UN Charter by invading Ukraine. We have seen Russia violate the Geneva Conventions by targeting indiscriminately civilians in Mariupol and elsewhere in Ukraine. But just because Russia is breaching the UN Charter, is breaching the Geneva Conventions, does not negate the value of the UN Charter and the Geneva Conventions. The reason we agree these rules is because we agree a standard to hold countries accountable to. And so just as there is condemnation and consequences for Russia's behavior uh, in the physical uh, domain in Ukraine, I urge everybody here, especially the lawyers in the room, but also the operators, when we're talking about what, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, please also be asking the question, does this violate international humanitarian law? I know there are many people who would say we haven't yet reached that threshold. When we've been talking, uh, the examples that were given by the keynote speakers before me would indicate that perhaps there are some instances that do. Regardless of if it does or doesn't, the point is we now need to be asking the question. Because, as Australian Lieutenant General Morrison once said, the standard that you walk past is the standard that you accept. And we have now accepted the standard that international humanitarian law applies in cyberspace. The message is simple. Missiles or malware, international humanitarian law applies. And I call on everyone in this room to help us to uphold that. And this really leads me to the second part of my speech. 
And this is the, the response by NATO uh, to the Russian invasion in Ukraine has largely been framed as a uh, response to defending the international rules-based order about values and democracy. Now, I have spent 10 years of my career as a diplomat, which I am no longer, I've joined academia, but I spent 10 years of my career avoiding talking about the international rules-based order, values and democracy in rooms full of military types or cyber operators. Because if I did, I knew that you would inevitably have a series of eye rolls. And so I'd just like to pause briefly for a moment and acknowledge the significance that we now have military commanders standing up talking about the defense of the international rules-based order and democracy and freedom. In the 10 years that I've been working in this space, I have learned some hard lessons about the way that we talk about the international rules-based order, largely by engaging with countries outside of the NATO sphere of influence. I've learned this through trial and error, that there are certain things that we say that really annoy the countries that are, on the, uh, that are not within our like-minded group of countries. And so I offer the following five hard truths for us. And I offer them because as domestic national policymakers are starting to talk about the international rules-based order more, as our militaries are starting to talk about it more, it, we don't have time for people to make the same mistakes that diplomats have been making for the last five to 10 years. And so I offer them in the hope that you can take them on board and leapfrog. The first hard truth is so evident that I almost didn't put it in, but then I put it back in. <laughs> and that is that if we had to renegotiate the current, re current rules-based international order, we couldn't negotiate it. Liberal Western democracies do not hold the balance of power. And the difference between the international rules-based order or the point of the international rules-based order is that might is not right. Numbers matter. And when you actually look at the numbers, this is from the Economic Intelligence Unit's Democracy Index. Full democracies, 21. Full authoritarian regimes, 59. The countries in the middle, about 100 in the middle, are classified as either flawed democracies or hybrid regimes. And it's those 100 countries in the middle that will make or break whether or not we are successful in defending the international rules-based order. We need to actually sell the existing international rules-based order to that 100 countries in the middle. Not to ourselves. We've already drunk the Kool-Aid. We need to sell it to the 100 countries in the middle. Because the current international rules-based order is ours to lose. And we won't get it back if we lose it. So how do we get it back? Well, for a majority of countries, the value of the international rules-based order isn't democracy and freedoms. It's stability. 
When I speak to the 100 countries in the middle, without fail, every time, they say to me, we're not interested in great power games. We're not interested in Russia and China and being a pawn in what's going on between them and the EU and the US. What we care about is our independence, our economies and our development. And actually, we're meeting here in Tallinn, and I think the Estonian case is an excellent example of this. Estonia declared independence in 1918. At the start of the Second World War, Estonia declared neutrality. Germany, Russia said, we don't really care that you've declared neutrality, we're going to declare you part of the Russian sphere of influence. And suddenly, a lot of young men, boys really, in Estonia, found themselves conscripted into the Red Army. And then the war continued, Germany and Russia had a falling out, declared war on each other, and Germany occupied Estonia. And many of those same boys were now forced to wear a German uniform. And then as the conflict progressed, many of them subsequently wore a version of an allied uniform. If you had have asked any of those Estonian boys or young men, or most of them in any event, what it was that they were fighting for, it didn't matter to them whether it was the Red Army, the German Army or the Allies. They were fighting for an independent Estonia. And I can speak about this relatively authoritatively because my grandfather was one of those boys. And this is a picture of him uh, as he was honorably discharged from the Allied forces in 1948. And then he moved to Australia where he had a family of which I am the product. Now, of course, we hope that we're not in a situation where the 100 countries in the middle are required or forced to choose by putting on different military uniforms. We all hope that we don't get to that point. But I think there are many countries, the 100 in the middle, that would really resonate with that sentiment of what we care about is our independence, our economy, and our development. And so when we talk about the rules-based international order, Rather than talking about the rules-based international order as promoting liberal democracies, when actually the point of the rules-based international order is to allow different types of governments to coexist peacefully. So let's instead emphasize and talk about this existing rules-based order providing the stability for countries to determine their own future. And if you do that, rather than talking about liberal democracy and alienating half the world, if we talk about the power to determine your own future, you will suddenly find a lot more countries rallying behind the existing rules-based international order. So what does all this have to do with cyberspace? Well, the third hard truth that I offer here is that NATO's lack of transparency around military operations erodes the mission of defending the rules-based international order. I want to make a few important clarifying points here. I'm talking about cyber operations in support of military operations. 
which, as uh, both General Nakasone and President Karras have just said, are now a fundamental feature of modern conflict. Just like the details of any military operation, I'm not suggesting that transparency means there is no classification. Of course, the details and the specifics of tools and means and methods need to be protected. But we do need to talk about the fact that we have these tools and that we use them in accordance with the international rules-based order. I really want to be clear about this point. This is not about the moral high ground. This is about saying there is no longer a strategic benefit to keeping these tools in the dark. There is a strategic benefit by being more transparent about what we're doing, and there is no military disadvantage to being more transparent. Continuing in the means that we do at the moment is an own goal in two different ways. Firstly, from a strategic perspective, Russia and China, despite all evidence to the contrary, continue to insist that they have not developed offensive cyber weapons for use in the military context. I have witnessed firsthand how powerful it is to stand on the floor of the United Nations and say, Australia develops offensive cyber capabilities. We use these capabilities in support of military operations, but we use them in accordance with international law and the norms that have been agreed at the United Nations. This points out Russian and Chinese hypocrisy to the hundred in the middle without us having to say a word against Russia and China. And that level of transparency really makes a difference. And the second point that I would make is it's an own goal to continue to keep these operations in the dark because NATO complies with the existing law and norms. And in my, in my view, it's disrespectful to the NATO cyber operators who are conducting these operations to continue to do so in the dark, implying that they're doing something nefarious, as opposed to that they are conducting operations that we can all stand behind and be proud of. So what I'm saying here is, I want to repeat, this is not about SIGINT. It is not saying no classification. It's saying public acknowledgement of the capabilities associated with a statement that we use them in accordance with international humanitarian law, international law and the norms. And it was really notable to me that in General Nakasone's remarks just now, that he referred to the use of the capabilities, but there was no mention of international law. And in doing so, that leaves 100 countries in the middle concerned. They're concerned about how these tools are being used. And I know, because I've witnessed it from the inside, that we use these tools responsibly. It's an own goal. And this really links to the fourth hard truth that I make, which is that if we want to defend the international rules-based order, we have to consistently demonstrate that we respect it. 
NATO declared cyber the fifth domain of operations back in 2016. And if we did a straw poll of the 100 countries in the middle and said, does NATO comply with the international rules-based order, law and norms uh, in air sea, and, uh, air, sea and land? For the most part, most countries most of the time would say yes. NATO has a really good reputation of doing the right thing, sometimes doing the hard thing, but doing it in accordance with the rules-based order that we're upholding. If you asked that same question of the 100 countries in the middle of cyber, you would get a very different response. And that is because, in part, of the lack of transparency that I was just referring to, but also because of a conflation of SIGINT operations, intelligence, and military operations, uh, in, or cyber operations in support of military. And so to everybody here today, I would say for all of you that you, is within your power to encourage your military forces to be more transparent about the fact that you have these tools, and every time you talk about them, no matter how high level, please be also reiterating the point that you use them in accordance with international law and norms. We need to normalize the way we talk about cyber operations, just like we talk about other operations. This will really go a long way in reassuring countries that the existing international rules-based order is an order that they should be defending, rather than an alternative that is being offered by Russia and China. And this leads me to my final point, which is my hard truth number five. And this is really goes back to that common criticism of why agree these things if it, doesn't, uh, if it restrains us but not our adversaries. I spent three years of my life, a year and a half of which was negotiating generally in the middle of the night in Australia. The UN negotiations started at 11 p.m. Australian time through to 6 a.m. I worked most weekends and traveled extensively speaking to countries all around the world. I don't say this for the glory. I say it to make the point that no one is more passionate or proud of what we achieved out of the OEWG and the GGE, particularly with respect to IHL. But I am also painfully aware that it is not enough. If we are going to meaningfully have restraint in cyberspace rather than articulate responsible state behavior, then we need to fix the verification conundrum. And what I mean by this is there is no existing cyber power that will give up or agree to a restraint on that cyber power until they can verify that their adversary will also respect that exercise of restraint. To put it bluntly, Australia wouldn't agree about not, to not preposition on other countries' critical infrastructure if we can't verify that China and Russia are not going to do the same thing. And so I say to everyone here, so much of the focus of our work is on things like cybersecurity and cyber defense. 
we really need to also focus on how we fix and solve the verification conundrum. Because if we genuinely want to move forward in UN negotiations and start negotiating restraint of cyber power, which would be to the benefit of all of our national security, we can't do that until we fix the verification conundrum. I'm quite sure that with the extensive brain power in this room, we can do that. It's not easy, but we can. And that will be the key to unlocking meaningful progress in discussions and also to driving peace and stability in the context of cyberspace. And as we all know, what happens in cyberspace doesn't stay in cyberspace. I really want to thank the NATO CCDCOE for inviting me here to speak. Um, it's an honor to be in a room full of, I've been told there's around 500 people here, which is amazing. I haven't been in a room full of 500 people in a really long time. I also uh, really wanted uh, to say how much of an honor it is to speak after General Nakasone and President Karas. In particular, I think the second would make my grandfather very, very proud. I hope that this conversation starts many more interesting conversations, and I look forward to talking to you all in the margins. Thank you. Talking Tech Policy is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced by Jack Fox. Thanks also to Ben Gowdy for his research and post-production support. We would be most grateful if you could subscribe, rate the pod, leave us a review, or perhaps give us a shout out on social media or around the water cooler at work. All of these things help us to get the word out and the more interest we have, the better we can make the podcast. Please also do let us know if there's a topic that you would like us to cover in future episodes. Thank you for listening. And until next time, get in touch and get involved.